Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Well, good morning. My name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm pastor here at Covenant Church and uh, just one of the elders with the great privilege of uh, serving this church as we go about our mission. And today we start a brand new sermon series. And this sermon series uh, came upon us as I was thinking about teaching uh, the really familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 13. My goal sort of, love is patient, love is kind. My goal was, was to ruin every wedding you go to for the rest of your life where they read a passage and you go, isn't that sweet? And my actual subversive goal was to rewire the way you think about that and therefore uh, create in you every time you hear it at every wedding for the rest of eternity, you go, that's not actually what that means. And that, to me, felt like a lot of fun. In the course of kind of uh, noodling on this, uh, my friend Jackie had a a little bracelet on, like the one on the screen. And it said HWLF. And I knew it was compelling to me because I asked her multiple times what it meant. Like, she told me, and then I asked her again and again And then I thought, maybe that's what we should be doing. Um, And so that is what we're doing. This is our brand new sermon series. This is, uh, it's it's what it's called, HWLF. We're going to talk about what that means in a minute. We'll get there by going back to the 90s, because this is all rooted in the 90s. And you remember, you love the 90s. The 90s is as aggravating as the slide you see. Um, There was fresh war in the Middle East. There was the fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And they were kind of equally held in the culture, like, it's fine. Uh, We lost Princess Diana, but we gained Justin Bieber. So the 90s. That was the 90s. Uh, we also gained the WWJD bracelet. Remember that? The WWJD bracelet. Uh, a church in Holland, Michigan created it. And they were really proud of it. And it went viral. And everybody around the world was wearing this. And celebrities had it on. And then they created the follow-up because they wanted to answer the question, what would Jesus do? They were like, we got the answer. Boom. And they threw down the frog bracelet. You don't remember that one, do you? <laughs> Didn't catch on. Fully rely on God is what their answer was. And people were like, that's not that compelling. And so they probably made a million of those, and they're sitting in a warehouse somewhere up in Michigan. Good luck. It didn't catch on. So uh, today, as we jump into HWLF, um, we have the response to WWJD, which is, uh, as Jackie explained to me multiple times, he would love first. HWLF. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. We're going to talk about what is love in a minute. Um, we're, we're not quite there, but we are going to get there because um, that's the question we're going to ask. If, we, if it's he would love first, and the question becomes, what is love? And uh, I think what our culture is going to tell us is as long as it doesn't hurt you, baby, don't hurt me. As long as it doesn't hurt you, then it's love. Um, so you've seen these bracelets around maybe. Maybe you haven't. You're about to because you all got one today. If you didn't take one, take one with you. You've seen them on shirts. I've seen them on, on, on wrists and shirts. There's shirts and hats and, and people all around. I'm starting to see them, the young people. The people are wearing the bracelet. I got mine on, which is going to make it much less cool immediately. What's interesting to me, I love it because it's intended to answer a question. And I actually think the HWLF bracelet asks a bigger question. It asks, what is love? And this is a conversation we're going to have. So over the next seven weeks, we're going to have this conversation about what love is. And my, my hope is this series will inform the conversation that you need to have with those around you. So if you're wearing this, this is not like a gift. The bracelet's not a gift to you. So if you thought it was a gift and you're like, I'm good, it's actually a challenge. Wearing the bracelet for the next seven weeks is your challenge because what I would like you to do is have it, 
put it on, and then have people potentially ask you questions like I asked every time I saw it. Because that's the conversation we want to be having, which is, okay, if that means he would love first, society's going to take that a thousand different directions. And based on where they sit in culture, they're going to take that wherever they want. And our job is to have the conversation ready that describes what love truly is. So what we're going to do over these next seven weeks, we're going to dig into that 1 Corinthians 13 passage, but, but only a little bit today, more in the weeks to come. And what we're going to try to do is figure out what love is uh, today, what love isn't. And then how do we attain love, grow in love? How do we reflect love? And here's what I'm going to ask. Um, I'm going to tread on some sensitive places. I'm going to tackle complicated and nuanced ideas. And each week of this seven-week series, it's kind of like a chapter of a larger story. And to, to take one out from the others isn't going to do it a good uh, service. You're going to be like, well, that doesn't make a ton of sense. Uh, like I said, this week we're going to deconstruct cultural uh, definition of love. I'm not really going to do much on reconstructing it. And so if you just hear this week and you leave, you're going to go, oh, kind of a curmudgeonly place. They don't really have much hope here. Um, but if you just do next week, you're going to miss the fact that we deconstructed culture. So you kind of have to take the whole as it is. Um, and this is the challenge for you is going to be, it's going to be easy to pull snippets here as well. Um, and if you pull a snippet and don't like it, that's on you. If you listen to the whole thing and don't like it, then we get to have a conversation. And we get to go, well, tell me what you don't like. Tell me what, why this is offensive. Tell me why this runs counter to what you believe. And I'd love to have those conversations. But my, my thinking is that probably every single one of us is going to have some aspect of our current worldview challenged. No matter where we sit on political spectrums or uh, generational ideological, we're going to have some part of how we feel about the world around us and love as it is in our modern culture challenged. And I think that's a good thing. So we're going to um, ask that question, what is love? And our, our culture has, has been landing in a place that seems to be a mix between um, something that happened in the sexual revolution, which is like love is whatever I feel it to be in like the free love of the 60s and 70s, and, uh, and the Hippocratic Oath, actually. It's kind of gotten blended in because go and do no harm. And so it sort of is love is whatever I feel it to be as long as it doesn't hurt somebody. It's kind of what we've done, which is why the title of today's sermon, as you already have now heard, is what is love, baby, don't hurt me. Okay, that's, that's a joke for me. That's not for you. Um, so 1 Corinthians... 13. I said we won't be here long today, but we're going to start there because we're going to sit there every week. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, it says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So love, it seems, as we get into this, is pretty important. Love seems essential, and it seems that without love that we'd be in pretty big trouble. And I think this part of the passage begs the same question again. Okay, so what is love? And it's going to answer it in one way, but before we get to the answer of what is love, we have to deconstruct what it isn't. And so we have to look at the modern definition of love, and we've kind of hinted at it already, but we have to know we live in a postmodern culture, which means that like definitions are sort of like jello thrown against the wall. Like They just kind of stick, and then they fall off, and we come up with a new one. So prepare for the unsatisfying current cultural definition of love. Love is whatever I define it to be today. That is the current cultural definition of love. And if you don't know that or you don't, I don't know if that's true, that's what it is. And that's the world you're walking back into is love is whatever I define it to be today. In shorthand, this goes like this. Love is love. You've heard that. You've seen that. You've seen advertisements for that. You've seen people hijack that phrase and use it for any number of means. Love is love which is to say you can't question my love because I've called it love and so it's love. 
One thing I don't love is that definition. I don't love that. Because we wouldn't accept that definition in any other area. I think it's lazy, and I think it's not fair. When we say love is love, so just, hey, love is love, we wouldn't accept that anywhere else. If a young couple comes into my office and they said, look, we need some advice, our marriage is not going so great, and we're, our biggest fight is about money, can you, like, we're embarrassed to even ask this, but what is, like, what is a budget? How do I do that? And I went, yeah, this is going to be heavy lifting for you guys, but we're going to get through this. Budget is budget. That, that's not helpful. No, no, it, it, psh, budget is budget. How much do we spend? We spend more than we make, though. Yeah, that's fine. That's, if that's what you call a budget, then you should do that. Well, you wouldn't like that. That wouldn't work for them. That wouldn't help them. That wouldn't serve anybody. It would, it would just seek to confuse. You can't go to your therapist, confess your deepest, uh, darkest issues and your, your, your struggles and your thoughts. You can't go and then have them go, hmm, that's tough, but depression is depression. Have a nice day. If you go to your financial advisor and you say, oh, we need to really work on my, my retirement, and they go, money is money, though. I mean, just like, whatever. But I want more money. Uh, money is money. Don't. Your oncologist, to be really satisfied with cancer is cancer. No, you'd say, what is it? How do I get better at it or worse at it or how do I get rid of it or how do I manage it? When we ask any question about anything else in the world, we want a real definition. And this is the one area where society has said, this is off limits and we're not going to actually provide you any sort of serviceable definition because we don't have one and it's changing and we might want it to be different tomorrow. So we're just going to say the word again and hope that that's enough. The challenge is that we seem to be okay with it just being amorphous. We seem to just go, uh. And maybe we've been kind of beaten down by going, I just hear it so often, it's just not my worth. It's not worth my breath to fight it. And I'm not saying you should fight it, but I'm saying you need to fight it within yourself to know that that's not actually a valid definition for anything. We have allowed love to be reduced to a feeling. So if I said, when I feel love, I feel love, okay, I can't argue with that. If that's what you feel, that's, that's what you feel. But when we reduce love itself to a feeling, we have a problem because then it, it gets to be defined by whoever feels it. So if you feel happy, you tell me what that feels like, then I know what happy means to you. If you tell me you feel love and then you tell me what that feels like, then I know what love means to you. But we're not defining what is it feel like for you to have love. We're talking about what is love in our culture. And what does it mean to have true love? What does real love look like? As a series, uh, this is going to challenge a lot of what our progressive culture says, which is, uh, it's going to be a challenge for some people. And I'm, I'm not apologizing for that, but I am warning you that there will be people, I told our elders this, I said, there will be people who probably leave our church because we're a sliver off of, of what they feel about love. And so I'm not going to come up here and represent anything about how I feel about love. I'm going to represent what scripture says about love. And we're going to try to tread lightly in that. Um, we're also going to recognize that um, progressive culture is kind of an icon and an idol for a lot of, uh, especially generationally as we come younger, we want to be progressive and to be seen as anything other than progressive is to be seen as wrong. And the question we have to ask as followers of Jesus is what are we progressing to and what are we progressing away from? If, if progressive culture takes us away from Christ, you're progressing away from God. And I don't care if you vote liberal or conservative, I don't care any of that. This isn't about any of that. This is saying, before we start adopting labels and identifying as certain things, we have to recognize what those things mean and actually ask the difficult questions. So, this will be indirectly, but still addressing LGBTQ viewpoints. We need to be radical in our love. I want you to hear that. 
we need to be radical in our love for everybody. Wherever they are on the journey, we're radical in our love for them. As Jesus was. Jesus gave his life for those who were still sinners. Okay? We're not here to mock someone's experience of the world. We're not here to undermine anyone's dignity as a human being or demean anyone's status as a precious person created by God, the creator of the universe. So if you leave here and you go, ugh, those people, you didn't hear it. That's not love. But we are going to be touching on things that are going to create kind of a, a churn in us, and that's okay. We're not here to elevate one struggle above another either, which is what we're really good at as evangelicals. We're really good at taking this in, this in, and this in, and making them the worst, and taking these other ones that are private in my own home and making them okay. And we're not doing that. We're not going to discount someone's worth because we've chosen to demonize their experience. Okay. So when we speak truth, we speak truth in love, knowing that it's our responsibility to radically love as Jesus did. If you want to know our statement of faith, it's clear on what we believe on sex and gender and human life. I can send it to you. If you want to email me, I'm happy for that. What we would say in uh, kind of summation is you were designed for flourishing within the parameters that God sets forth in Scripture. One man and one woman. We have a couple of sermons a few years ago that dealt really deeply on sex and gender and how all of that plays into this and, and unpacking God's truth. And so what we want to say today, I'll post those this week. I can send those out if you want those. It was October of 2018 in an unbelief series. If you're scrolling through the website, you can go find those and listen to them. We've got an hour and 20 minutes to, to unpack. For today, culture isn't rooted in God's truth. Culture isn't rooted in Scripture. So it should be no surprise to us, if we follow Jesus, that culture seems to be going the other direction. Culture seems to be taking love in places that Jesus didn't ever say that it should go, which means it's falling back on feelings. And so we hear things like, as long as my feelings acted out don't hurt anyone, do no harm, then what could be wrong with it? You've heard this before. Hey, I'm not hurting anybody. Let me be. Societally, I say, that's fine. Whatever you want to say. But we're not societal. We're scriptural. And I would, I would challenge that mindset of as long as my feelings don't hurt someone, as long as my feelings and my private actions in my home don't hurt somebody, then they're fine. The number one place that I hear this is uh, men, primarily, but it's is uh, men and women both struggle, is pornography. As people will come to me and go, look, it doesn't hurt anybody, though. Look, I'm struggling with this, and I don't even know if I call it a struggle. I'm, I don't know. I just, it's not hurting anybody. And the argument always goes that it isn't hurting somebody when someone else watches something in private, okay? And, and so my response to that one is pretty clear. It's not hurting anybody except that trafficking and pornography have been proven to be tied really tightly together except that it dangerously rewires the gratification circuits in your brain and those synapses start getting all screwy, except that there are uh, well-documented abusive horrors behind the scenes. Drug addiction, physical abuse, to say nothing of the demeaning of God's people and the diminishment of God's gift of sex. So other than that, maybe it's not hurting anybody, but yeah, it hurts. There's a ton of people getting hurt by this. And so, so one private affection has a huge ripple effect and we're not saying this to, to shame anyone either. And this is a common issue. It's common among men. It's actually more and more common among women. And so we actually want to put emails on the screen. I want to let you see these. Uh, if you're struggling, if pornography is something you're struggling with, stuck in, shackled by, if you have a partner who's uh, foisted this upon you as part of your relationship, and they're like, yeah, this is what we need to, um, there's help. These are. Uh, Two confidential ways. Women, you can reach out to Carissa. Carissa is a clinical psychologist and uh, the, the leader of our women's ministry. And so carissawatt at gmail.com, you can reach out to her, and she knows how to handle confidentiality, and she knows how to point you towards resources. Uh, Nick is also here. 
he obviously understands confidentiality and um, is ready and willing to help and be part of a solution. So nobody needs to walk in here struggling with that and then walk out still struggling with that and walking in shame. It's not about shame. We're attempting to undo what society has said. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. We're going, no, it's not. But we want to love you through it. We want to help you through it. So that's there for you. Hope you've had time to write those down. If not, you can come see me. We can post that. We don't want you struggling. So, so that's the, as long as it's not hurting somebody, and that doesn't work. We know that doesn't work. The other side of this is, is sort of this kind of like love can't hurt either. It also shouldn't hurt. Love, true love doesn't hurt someone else. So not only should it, it doesn't hurt you and that makes it okay. Also, it shouldn't be real painful. It shouldn't hurt me if you're, that, that's not true love. And we got to draw a problem with that too. Love is hard. Um, true love is hard. And love can actually be beneficially painful. Uh, John 15. Jesus says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So let's establish Jesus is God, right? We've established that. Jesus is God. And God, Scripture says, is love. So, so love is here, and love says that in his love for you, he's going to cut you back and prune you. Pruning inflicts pain which keeps you from growing a certain way. Love is saying, I'm going to restrict you in various things so that you can find your optimal flourishing. That's what love says. In order to see you flourish, I'm going to create restriction and occasional pain. I'm going to create a way for you to go. And you're not always going to like it, but it's best for you and you're flourishing. It's how I designed you. It's like you would love on a kid and occasionally have to discipline them. And they experience emotional pain or physical pain or whatever pain. And you're like, yes, but it's for your, it's, it's for your good. You're grounded for your good. You Give me the car keys for your good. New Year's Eve. People like to party on New Year's Eve. It'd be really nice if people were willing to restrict others for the good of the whole, wouldn't it? I think you've had nine too many beers. Let me take those keys, and we're going to call you an Uber. You're restricting my right to drive, you know. Uh-huh, we know. It's because I love you. We, we all recognize that as love, but it's a restriction. It's a pruning. It's a, and that's okay. You do it out of love. So not only is love is fine as long as I don't hurt somebody, false. That's not real. But love, true love can't inflict pain is also false. And all these little places that we hang love in our culture just keep tumbling down because they don't hold up to any inspection. Next, love is love. And as long as what I feel doesn't impact your safety or freedom, it's fine. That's another one. Love is love, and as long as it doesn't impact your safety or your freedom, it's fine. I might surprise you. I'm going to say, look, for the kingdom of the world, I'm okay with that. For the kingdom of the world, for the society at large, if that's what, if we're a democratic society and people vote and that's the majority, fine. That's the kingdom of the world's problem. I have no jurisdiction there. What we have to remember is you live, you have dual citizenship. You live in the kingdom of the world, but you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And unless you take that citizenship seriously, what you find yourself doing is trying to fit into the kingdom of the world and neglecting your, your other citizenship. You've been made children of God. You've been made citizens of a kingdom. So you belong to a new kingdom that was created and designed by God and is governed by God. There's no democracy there. You don't get to vote. It's been ushered in by Jesus, who says his law, God's law, is what he came to uphold. So Jesus doesn't say no more law. Jesus says the law matters. And the scripture matters. And everything that's been done before me, it matters. I will not only fulfill it, but I will uphold it. So Jesus doesn't undo God's law. Jesus is the embodiment of God's law on earth. 
And Jesus comes and he says, you were designed for flourishing. And what we've said before, what we'll say again this week and probably in the weeks to come, if God is the designer, then God gets to be the definer. As we look at the world around us and we go, is this right or is this wrong? We get to ask the question, if God is the designer, if, he, if we truly believe, we're followers of Jesus, and we go, God created the earth. And I don't care whether you think God created it in six literal days and then rested, or six literal days was a metaphor and it was actually billions of years in evolution. It doesn't matter. If you think God is the creator of the universe, that God is the first domino tip in the whole thing, that out of nothing God spoke and the world came into being, if you think that's true, then everything from there is up to him. We don't get to play with it and go, well, you did it, but I'm going to change some of this because I think you kind of messed it up. This is uh, the illustration I would actually use. I have a book here. Um, let's see who's out here. I just got to see where I'm. Um, so this is a book, and it was written to be read, to be honest. This one has not been read. Um, but what if I told you that I don't actually think I want to use it for that? I, I think it's a Frisbee. And you'd go, well, clearly it's not a Frisbee, it's a book. And I'd go, yeah, yeah, but, it's, but I'm choosing to identify it as a Frisbee, and that's what I want to do with it. And you would go, you can do that, but again, it's not how it was designed. And I know this because um, I wrote the book. I designed the book. So I can tell you for sure, I don't know who else wrote book. I designed this to be read. And you say, I think I'm going to go that direction. You guys ready over there? I'm going to use it as a Frisbee. You might, yeah, this is a dangerous spot. That was free. Um, also, I need that book back. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I designed the book to be read. I can use it as a Frisbee. It actually worked better than I thought it would. Trust me, I practiced. And there were three people that were here early, and they are not here anymore because I was, oof. Um, it's not designed for that. And it's clearly not designed for that. It's clearly designed for something else. And I can use it as a Frisbee, but it's clearly designed for something else. The flourishing I designed it for was for someone to open it and read it and soak in the words, not for someone to throw it to a friend. And so Katie can take it and throw it to a friend. And that's fine. And we can continue to play Frisbee with it. It doesn't make it how it was designed. It doesn't make it its optimum use. And so when we talk about the way that the world is and the way that we apply love to the world and relationships and gender and all these things, we can choose to identify things however we want. And as followers of Christ, we have to come back to the fact that it was a, there's a design for a purpose for optimum flourishing. And you look at your scripture and it says one man and one woman. And I don't have to like it even. You could say, I don't even like that. You go, ah, I don't like that. I got this relative, I have this friend, I have this neighbor. And man, they seem really happy and they're monogamous and they're, they adopt kids and they're, they're great people and I love these people and why can't that be right? And I go, it's not up to me. It's up to the designer to define the life that he creates. And so if the designer is going to be the definer, that changes the way we see the world around us and it doesn't make us hateful either at all. It makes us sympathetic to the fact that somebody's using, if that's her Frisbee, I'm going to go to the store and buy her a Frisbee. That's a terrible Frisbee. I want her to feel flourishing and, and have real life. I don't want her to get stuck with that and think that that's real Frisbee. The same way that I don't want somebody who's living in love is love world to think that that's real love. That's not love. That's a feeling. And it comes and it goes. This has nothing to do with gay, straight even. Why do we have the, the relational status of our, of our straight evangelical Americans? Why is the divorce rate the same as it is with none? Because we've adopted this worldview that love is love, and if I feel loved, and if my needs are being met, it's about me, and it's nothing about that. 
And so when we adopt the world's status and the world's standards for love, we go sideways, every single one of us. This is how we get talking about orientation. And this is a delicate topic for people. Or, hey, born this way. I was born this way. She was born this way. He was born this way. I actually, I think this is a place where we don't have to agree or disagree. I think we can say maybe. Maybe someone is born this way. Born this way, that way, the other way. I can allow for that because Scripture says that we were all born into sin. We were all born broken. Iniquity just means crooked. None of us were born straight. We're all born broken. We were born with some sin in us, some flesh in us that said, ah, I'm going to take it the wrong way. Scripture's clear over and over. The, the way a man heart want, what man's heart wants to go, that's not the right way, but God's way, that's the right way. There's a way that seems right to men, but that's folly. Uh, we're supposed to lean on God's understanding. Proverbs 3, over and over and over, Scripture says, you were born broken. You were born with sin proclivities. You were born desiring the things of the flesh, and it takes a rebirth to get out of that. So people will say, you know, born this way, that's my argument. Love is love, and someone was born this way. And I go, look, I was born this way. And I used this before in 2018, and I'll use it again, and it makes everybody a little uncomfortable. Sorry. I was born heterosexual, oriented heterosexually. I was born to desire women, plural, okay? So my wife, it's not Lauren, my wife, who's leading worship today, sits right over here in the front row. There she is in the back. You're right in time, honey. <laughs> she, God has designed me and, and wired me, though, and rewired me to find faithfulness for her. That God's design, according to his scriptures, that one man and one woman would live in a faithful, monogamous, uh, covenant promise relationship together forever. That's it. And so that's my only outlet for that. Now, I was wired, as my pre-marriage days will clearly evidence to you, I was wired for promiscuity, and for women, plural. And there is something in my flesh that is easily able to say, I still, I, I could want 100 women. I can allow my lust to run, and I can watch the television. I can look at yoga pants, McYoga face at Starbucks. I can do whatever you want to do and be like, I like that. I want that. I desire that. I'm oriented to want that. That's actually not my fault that I'm oriented to want that. I was wired to want that, and so I should go and take that? And you would go, no, 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 don't go, don't go take that. Let her take her latte and go. That's not for you. You made a covenant promise to a spouse based on a scriptural understanding of what marriage is. I go, that's fair. But I'm oriented to want yoga pants and Starbucks. And so you have to challenge yourself and you have to challenge those around you to go, listen, what you want and desire is not the same thing as what God has desired for you. And if I choose to follow what I want and desire in my fleshiest of flesh, then I'm not going to be married very long and all of the joy that God promises in a loving relationship is going to fall away. It's upon me to crucify my desires, Scripture says, so that I might follow his plan for my life. Now, that's hard to say when it's an unpopular thing to say when it comes to other orientations. But for a heterosexual evangelical orientation, you would go, yeah, be faithful to your wife, bro. And yet we find it really hard, even quietly, to have that argument. We feel like we're uh, betraying somebody who is oriented some other way. I have to work and fight to be a faithful husband to one woman. I am oriented to be a nightmare. But 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this. Same book we're going to be reading out of all the next seven weeks. He says, I discipline my body to bring it into subjection or submission, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Paul is, is referencing like being a runner and training for a, a marathon type of idea. And he goes, I have to bring my body. If I want to do this thing the way that God has called me to do it, I have to bring myself into submission. I have to bring my body into subje- subjection. The flesh in me, I have to bring it down and hold it and look at it and go, that's not the way it's going to go. And that's upon each and every one of us. So if we're going to be chasing true love, we first have to recognize what love isn't and the false arguments of love that we have bought into that we start to grapple with and go, well, maybe, maybe. It doesn't work that way. Paul says you can do just about anything, but the race you're running requires something different of you. Requires a recognition that you have new life in a new kingdom. You've been remade. You've been renewed. You can choose to live oriented to the flesh and to the world. You can choose that every single day. Or you can choose to live oriented to God and his kingdom. You choose every day. That's much as true. You do choose your orientation every day. I can choose to live into my flesh or I can choose to live into God's kingdom. I can tell you which one is easier short term. And I can tell you which one is greater for my flourishing long term. Because I've done both. Line of debate is not going away about orientation. We are not going to get too much further into it. You need to know that this is bananas out there. There are serious, multiple, not one, not one lunatic somewhere. There are lots of serious scholarly articles, journal, debate about whether pedophilia should be classified as an orientation. Because if you have some sympathy there and you go, this person didn't wake up one morning choosing to be like a monster. Something in them is totally broken. And and the conversation is like, well, should we classify that as an orientation? Because this person was born with that predilection. Well, I don't know what it changes practically in in the larger construct of how we think of people, but that's a real thing. And so we have to go, it doesn't matter if that gets decided and they say, actually, that's an orientation. It wouldn't change a thing. We'd go, yeah, it's still not for flourishing. It's still not for someone's best. It's still not the optimum use of of a human life, is it, at all? And so this debate goes really squirrely really fast. What we need to remember is we were born into brokenness. And in Jesus, we are called, like Nicodemus was called, we are called to be born again. Nicodemus, what do you mean be born again? Reborn, how can I, I've already left my mother's womb. You want me to get back in and be born again? Jesus says you have to be born again because you've been born into a world that is crooked and broken and you must experience a rebirth in Christ, have new life in Christ, and only in him can you find true life as you need it. Only in them will you live by the new and the higher power available to you. So come back around. Love is love. Love is love is a valid definition if. If love is a feeling or a physical act based on orientation or desire or whatever other cultural metric is popular at the moment. So if we're just talking about those things, love is love is fine. That's that's the reality of the modern world. What you need to hear as followers of Christ is you have been called to live in an alternate reality. That there, there, are, there are parallel planes happening here. And the reality of the world around us is not the reality of the world you've been called into. The reality of the kingdom of the world is not the reality of the kingdom of heaven. They are two separate things running on separate parallel planes, and you get to choose which one you're going to adopt. God's reality, the definer's design, defines love very differently. We're going to get to it in depth next week. We're going to glance on it this week so you know what's coming. Before we do that, one final trap to be aware of when we talk about love in our culture. We're deconstructing love in our culture. One last trap. And this is the most subtle one, and each and every one of us do this every day. So this is the one you're guilty of no matter what. Yeah. New year, a lot of fun in the sermon 
department this year. Just yelled at us for an hour. Okay, listen, put the, Jackie, put the orange juice on the, and see this? If you told me when I was growing up, if you told me that orange juice came in a bottle in the refrigerated section of the grocery store, I would have fought you on that. There is no way. Orange juice comes in cans, people. And then what you do is you get a pitcher out and you get this sort of orange slushy stuff and you squeeze it out of the can. You usually have to get a wooden spoon and you get the rest of it in there. And then you add a little bit more water than the can says to add because you've got to dilute it a little extra because you're saving pennies. And you stir it up and then you have a pitcher of orange juice for the next couple days. That's orange juice. This is what orange juice looks like to me. It wasn't until I was in my 20s that I knew orange juice came in a bottle. And I was like, oh, man, the rich kids and their bottled orange juice. I'm over in the freezer section just hoarding these things. These are great. You can eat it as a snack. Just bite it. This is orange juice. And what did we do in my family? And what did you probably do in your family? You diluted it, right? It's, it's concentrated, so you then dilute it. And we over-dilute it, so it's even worse than it, it was intended to be. And... and then it becomes orange juice. It's orange juice. It's diluted, but it, uh, it's close enough, right? And this is what we've done with love. This is what we've done with love for generations. Love is now a branding slogan. Look around. You don't even notice it anymore. Yeah. What do you love? Do you notice that the, the, there's a woman on your screen kissing a can of Pepsi? And you didn't really think twice. You're like, oh, that's cool. I get it. That's an ad. I see that. We don't even think it's weird that a woman is kissing a can of, of sugar water. We don't think that. We're just like, that's normal. What do you love? I love breakfast food. I love the browns. I love the theater. I, what do you love? You love things. I love. I love this. I love that. I love this. You just went through Christmas. Ah, oh, love the holidays. Love those lights. Love, 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 love. We love everything. We love everywhere. We love, 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 love to the point that we've diluted the word love and it doesn't even really taste like love anymore. We kind of stir it around that slush in the, the, the pitcher and we have a pitcher of love, but it doesn't really taste like love like it used to. And so now when I say love and you tell me orange juice, I'm like, I don't really want any orange juice. I don't know what that is, but I don't want that. When we say love, we've so diluted the word love. Eh. Love is a Pepsi. Love is a Big Mac. Love is a Subaru. Uh, love is love. I don't know. Whatever. Love is love. And this is what we've done. This is not new. Generations ago, you guys had your chance. Southwest Airlines is famous in evangelical culture for being like this great example of love. Their ticker symbol on the New York Stock Exchange is famously LUV, love. They're the love airline. We love to fly. And it shows. The bottom of their planes have hearts on them. They're supposed to do a really great job with their employees and retention, and they're, they're a management and, and leadership, like just this paragon that people look at, in, especially in evangelical culture. Oh, Southwest Airlines is the best. Did you know? They did not start out as the best, and somehow we forgot their history. Southwest Airlines was originally branded as the love airline. Their automatic ticket dispensers at the airport were called love machines. They had in-flight snacks that were known as love bites. And the free, yes, free, alcoholic drinks for every flight were called love potions. They only hired attractive women of certain uh, seemingly acknowledgeable proportions. They would only hire certain women, and then these women, like the women in black and white on your screen, would really professionally sit and take orders from their mostly middle-class male businessman clientele. They were selling flights like Hooters sells chicken wings. No, no, I'm there for the chicken, though. And they called it love. And we went, 
Yeah, it seems good enough. Is it any wonder why we've lost the meaning of love in our culture? Is it any wonder why we look at things like that, why we, we are inundated by the diluted forms of love all around us, and when we say the word love, we don't even know what we mean anymore? Is love a feeling? Is it a physical act? Is it a marketing strategy? As followers of Christ, we are called to reject all of that. We're called to reject that and hold up a higher standard. So let me preview next week for you. When we say, what is love? John 15, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. So the Father sent the Son to die a sacrificial death for you and I. So as the Father loved me, as, as, as God sent Jesus to die sacrificially for you, okay, verse 10, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So what is the heart of, of remaining in love? Obedience? Keeping commands? That's the heart of love? It seems to imply that obedience has a major part in love. We don't like obedience at all. Verse 11, I've told you this so that you, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So love as God defines it when the sending of his son for a sacrificial death on behalf of all, that sort of love is actually what leads to true and complete joy. Greater love, verse 13, has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. So optimize perfect love in the eyes of Jesus, who's speaking you're like, ah, oh, this is Leviticus again, though. That's not. No, this is Jesus. So you follow Jesus. This is what we're following. Optimized, perfected love is sacrificial. And death on a cross is our example of perfected love. Not a Subaru. 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Remember that pruning? So that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. So Jesus' love for you has elevated you from enemy to friend. His death on your behalf elevated you from enemy to friend, from growing wild to bearing fruit. From where you were, accepting whatever the world might give you, to where you are now, living a fruitful life in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 17, this is my command, love each other. So if obedience to God's commands is the heart of love, and love is the command, with love being defined as sacrificially laying our lives down for others, that would mean that we have a lot to unpack next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you... Uh, have high expectations for us, I would say. These are, are difficult topics because we've, um, Father, I would confess, we make them less than they are. We take what is good and we spin it in a way that uh, feels good. We take what is created and we spin it in a way that allows us to feel like we are in control of creation. Father, my prayer is that as we tackle the difficult things of love, as we unpack what it means to uh, reject 
the kingdom of the world's definition. And, and next week, as we begin to start putting together what your definition really looks like and how we might actually experience that and live it out. Father, my prayer is not, not that we would be a people of shame and guilt, not that we would be a people of regret that we've somehow lost the plot, but Lord, would you give us an expectation of the fullness of joy that you speak to in your word? That as we begin to better and better grasp true love, as we begin to live it out better, Lord, might, uh, might we begin to feel the fullness that comes with it. And then in the rear view mirror of our life, Lord, would you give us that, that feeling of being able to look back dismissively as the thing we thought it was, knowing that we have something so much better. Father, for those in this room who would struggle with any of the things that we're talking about, I've got to pray first for your uh, enlightenment and illumination, that your spirit would be the interpreter of hearts. God, I pray uh, not only for that, but for a community that would come around and have real discussion, would be thoughtful and heartfelt. God, that we would be people of grace first, of radical love first, that like you, we would love first. And as we begin to define what that love means, may we do it in even more radical ways. May we love all people around us in radical ways so that they might know your love too. Father, thank you for Jesus, for his salvation, and for what it means about who we are and the kingdom we live in. We lift up these prayers in his holy name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.